Yes, sir. Yeah. So before we go any further, I do want to ask if Kurt and Mary Sims could come up to the front here real quick. Kurt and Mary Sims. There, I see them. Come on up here. Can I get Mark and any deacons to come up here as well? So Kurt, uh, in particular, not Mary, but Mary and Kurt come as a package. You know, they're married. And so wherever Kurt goes, Mary goes in spirit. I'm sure she prefers that sometimes. Um, I'm just saying, because, you know, like my wife says, she likes it when I go on trips sometimes too. Anyway, Kurt's actually leaving this week to go to Kenya, East Africa, to go and preach the gospel. He's going to go and evangelize. He's going to go and pray with people, to trust people for a move of God. And so we as a church love sending people. And so we just want to pray for them as a couple. Before they go out, we want to pray for Kurt, that the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him, give him wisdom, and that he will bless the fruit of his ministry. It's an important thing when people go to preach the gospel. We're also praying and trusting that the harvest, in other words, the people that he's going to, would be ready to receive him. And so God would start doing a work even now. Now, long before he ever gets it. So, Kurt, I'm going to ask Mark to pray for you real quick, and we're going to lay hands on you as we send you out. Father God, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, we commission and uh, send out Kurt uh, from our church, his base church, to go and be apostolic, to go and preach the gospel, to make disciples, to train future disciple makers. Mm. I pray, God, for your favor upon his travel. I may that uh, may he have uh, so many divine encounters that he can only give yes. you the glory and the Amen. honor for setting yes, that, that appointed time up Amen. for your glory and for the salvation of many. Bless his ministry. Bless this man. May he come back and, and, and mm. bring the good news that the gospel is spreading yes. throughout the world. You, and we celebrate him and his desire to serve you and to make much of you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So what does the Bible say? Pray to the Lord of the harvest for more laborers. Amen. Amen. That's what we need to be praying for. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, welcome. If you're online, welcome. You're also welcome too. Uh, everyone's, inv- everyone's welcome today. Even you hope rockers out there, people that consider this church home, you especially welcome. How many of you thought last week's Sunday was awesome with Steve and Terry, right? Yes. Hey, our NCMR partners coming in here, depositing in us. If you weren't here, you can go catch up on the message. But it was a great message reminding us that uh, sometimes the biggest challenges or disruptions in our life come as a result of us pressing into the things of God. And so when we get these tough times, when the Lord challenge, allow, allows challenge to come into our lives, we mature in our faith, we grow up. And that was just a powerful message. On that note... I want to speak real quick about this upcoming NCMI time that we're having here in Texas. At the end of this month, the 24th and the 25th of March, we're going to be hosting a regional training time. And I'm saying this this morning before I preach because I think it's important for those that have never been to one of these times to make this time a priority. And there's a few reasons why times like this where we get invested in by people that have this apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, pastoral, even teaching gift because it equips us for the work of the ministry. We'll talk about that a little bit in this morning's preach. But the reasons why you should come is that, first of all, it's free, right? So that's pretty awesome. Hey? You don't have to pay for anything. And more than free, you get to put your kids in childcare. So, I mean, how many of you need a date night, right? Date night, hey? Who is out there for a date night? Kenny, Mark, are going to be there. Don't worry, they've committed right now. Thank you. Can I see any other hands out there? If you need a date night and you want to be here and you want to get fed and want to grow up in the Lord, this is a great place to come. It's only two days, Friday night and Saturday morning. It's not a big commitment, guys, but I promise you now you will leave with wind being blown in your sails. So if you have not registered yet, 
please go and register. You can do it right now while you're logging back into the Hope Rock Church Center app, as Leah said, and you can register right there. Please register your kids as well so we know who to look after. Amen. Otherwise, if you don't register your kids, they'll have to stay in the parking lot. Okay? (laughs) It's just the way it is. Okay, on that note, uh, I want to thank everyone that was serving, volunteering, helping, leading, and doing all the amazing things that you guys do while I was away in Israel. I know that many of you have asked me how Israel was, and can you see pictures? We are going to do that, don't worry. I'm going to give you a feedback on the trip, uh, and that will come with some some of its own exciting announcements, but we're not going to do that this morning. Instead, this morning I just want to honor Mark and Tim for preaching great messages while I was away on discipleship and community both of which uh, I'm sure you would have realized are fundamental, in fact, very important to a healthy, thriving, and advancing church, right? And who wants to be a healthy church? We all want to be a healthy church, right? And that's partly what we're going to be speaking about today as we continue this journey of ours in the book of Revelation. You see, a healthy church is not something that we should desire to want to be but never become. I say that to you because what we'll realize today in Scripture is that being a healthy church is actually really, really important to Jesus. In fact, one could argue that being a healthy church impacts when Jesus returns. And so how many of you want to see Jesus? I want to see him, bro. Like, for real. Like, some days I wake up, I'm like, Lord, I'm looking at the clouds. Well, there's no clouds in Austin at the moment. When there are clouds, the other night when there was that wind, I was like, yes, Lord, I'm ready. Take me out there. I just got really wet and dirty. But my point being is we all want to see Jesus come. And to see him come, we need to be ready. But before we get into all of that, since there's a lot of new faces here today, and since we haven't been in the book of Revelation for a few weeks, let me help you understand where we're at. We're almost at the end of the series. That's pretty exciting. Amen? You should go, oh, man. We can't we, I think we should start again, right, when we're done. Go back through it again. See what else we missed. But we're almost at the end. We've covered five of the eight books found in the book of Revelation. Five or the eight series, sections, not books. It's one book with five or with eight sections. We've covered five. The first was the seven churches. Everyone remembers that. Letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, commending them and reminding them and rebuking them where needed. Those letters are relevant for us today. It then goes to the seven seals. God the Father on the throne with a scroll in his hand. Seven seals on that scroll. Only one person was found worthy to open the scroll. His name is? Jesus, which is great. That tells us that that scroll representing the purposes and the plans of God is being unraveled by Christ and he's working things out. From the seven seals, we went to the seven trumpets, warnings to a world that's turned its back on God, that it needs to come back to God. And if they don't, there's going to be a whole lot of trouble. And so the call to repentance is out there right now. In some sense, the trumpets are resounding even this morning saying, come back to me, walk away from the world and I will save you and give you eternal life. After that, we saw the seven visions, pictures of heaven, the demonic realm, the supernatural realm, and we start to understand how all of this stuff fits together and why God needs to deal with it. And then we get to the seven bowls of God's wrath, that super exciting, wonderful part of the book where we read about all the stuff that God's going to do to the wicked. Pretty sad, pretty daunting, and pretty scary. However, the bowls are only as a result of ignoring the trumpets. If you ignore the warnings of God, you will receive His wrath. Unfortunately, that's the way it is. This morning, we're back in the seven words of triumph. We've covered four of the words, and it's covered a whole bunch of stuff. The first word was about Babylon, this harlot, prostitute, city, the schemes and devices of this world that tempt us, not just as unbelievers, but as believers too, and how God absolutely detests the concept of worldliness and Babylon. The second word 
exposed us to the ultimate defeat of the beast of the sea, the beast with ten horns that represent the kingdoms, nations, institutions, governmental authorities, anti-Christian regimes that are against God's people and have been persecuting God's people throughout the millennia. Good news is they will be destroyed. The third word of triumph exposed us to the fall of Babylon. Babylon will fall, friends. The world will fall. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse for the world. I know sometimes it doesn't make any sense, but the truth is her power, greed, and sensuality will disappear one day, and we'll see some of that this morning. And then the last word that we covered a few weeks ago was that it's not just those who participate with Babylon. In other words, it's not just the people who are enticed by her seductions who will suffer, but every single person who has profited from Babylon, those people who peddle her wares, the people that ultimately tempt us as human beings and create industries and structures to draw people away from God, will lament when Babylon falls. And that brings us to today. And this last part of the section, we're going to cover three words of triumph this morning, and it's going to culminate with one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture, and that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelations 18. We're going to read from verse 21 this morning all the way through to chapter 19, verse 10, and we'll unpack it as we go. But let's bow our heads first before we do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is as true today as it was the moment it was written. In fact, when it was conceived in your heart, Lord, the word still has the same power today. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that as we read your word, these would not just be words on a piece of paper, but they would be words of life that you would do whatever you need to purpose with your words today, whether that is to convict us, whether that is to encourage us. But more than anything else, I pray that these words would point us closer and closer to you this morning, Lord Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Revelations 18.21 says this, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The three points I have for us this morning are really the words of triumph, the fifth, sixth, and seventh word. And what we see here in this fifth word of triumph is it's reminding us of something really important, and that is the fact that Babylon is not going to be on this earth forever. Not only will Babylon fall, not only will God bring his wrath against Babylon, but everything that Babylon has, is, and will stand for is going to be removed entirely and altogether from this earth. Jesus says something similar about a similar issue that he's talking about in the gospel. In the gospel of Luke, in fact, it's found in Mark and in Matthew as well. He says this in Luke 17 and verse 1. He says, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. Then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now I had the fortunate privilege of being in Israel and I did see a millstone. In fact, they were lying all around. There's a lot of them. People clearly had a lot of grain to grain or grind, whatever they did with it, grinding it. Those things are pretty like insane. It's a really big stone, really heavy, made out of volcanic rock. Think of the picture, tying that over someone's neck. It sounds like a mafia story, right? I'll give you concrete boots, right? Throw you into the ocean, the Hudson River. Except God's doing that to people that tempt people to sin. 
That's what Jesus says. The context of what Jesus is saying is those that come into the church, those that come to especially young believers and tempt them to sin, there is a punishment that is waiting for them that is severe. And it tells us something interesting about Babylon's intentions. It tells us why Babylon, worldliness, the systems of this world actually exist. It's not for our benefit. Babylon doesn't care about us. She doesn't want us to get better and healthy and happier. She wants to destroy us, friends. She wants to cause us to move away from God. Babylon's intentions have always been to tempt the world to forsake the one true God in exchange for gods of their own making, the gods of money, the gods of power, the gods of greed, the gods of comfort, whatever God it is that distracts you from the Lord God Almighty, those are the gods that Babylon wants you to go after. And what this text tells me is that this alluring, seductive temptation is not just something that lost people in this world have to deal with, right? Revelations 18 verse 4, what did, what did the angel say to the church? Come out of Babylon, my people. In other words, the world seduces the church. It starts to infiltrate the church. It wants to infiltrate the church. That's actually the sort of the, the focus of Jesus' message is they're coming into the church and they're dragging believers back into sin. And so that's pretty sad because it's going to affect us. The world affects all of us. And if you're not affected by it this morning, I need to know what it is that you are doing. But there's good news. Because what this text tells me is that one day all of Babylon's seductions, all of her temptations, all of the things that she does to distract us will one day be taken away from this earth forever. You know, when you throw something into the sea, do you have any hope of finding it? If you had to go into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and drop a wedding ring, would you find it again? No. That's what the metaphor is. The metaphor is casting somebody into the ocean is I'm going to send it to a place where she will never be found ever again. Verse 22, and the sound of harpists and musicians or flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. This is the, 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 the judgment on Babylon as she's being cast away forever and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, the people that control the world, those with power, the untouchables. We have them in this world today. Those that we can never come against because they've got too much wealth, too much power, too much money, too many armies behind them. Guess what? Even those great ones are going to suffer at the hands of the Lord. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in you, in her, Babylon, was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth, speaking of all the believers. It's interesting that the phrase no more is used six times in this passage of Scripture. And it's communicating something to us really important. It's reinforcing the simple fact that the same way Babylon has caused pain to come upon God's people, she will be punished. The very same ways she has hurt believers across the millennia, she will receive judgment for. Let me give you an example. Remember the seven churches, we discovered a church in Revelations chapter 2 and verse 9, a church by the name of Smyrna. Smyrna as a city in Turkey forced people in order to operate within the economical structures of the day to worship pagan gods. Whether it was Roman emperors or Zeus or many others out there, in order for you to be a part of a trade guild, to actually be able to make a living, to feed your children, to feed your family, you had to bend your knee to the gods of the age. And so what did the church in Smyrna do? They said, no ways, no thank you, that's not for us. 
You see, Babylon has been ostracizing believers for centuries. And it's not just something that was exclusive to the first century church, friends. We see it happening today. Just read the news. Maybe read some news, not all of it, because some of it's, I mean, fake news. But my point being is that what you hear all the time is people that are being persecuted because they're taking a stand for their faith. And ultimately, some people are excluded from the economy of the day because people boycott their businesses because they believe in Jesus. Friends, it's a terrible age we're living in, but it's not new. This has been happening for thousands of years. The text tells me that her merchants, the great ones, the ones that peddled their ways to all of the people will also feel what it's like to be ostracized from the economy one day. In fact, it goes on. It tells us that all the pleasures that have been taken away from believers throughout the centuries, whether that's through economic, social, or political persecution, will be removed from the world systems. Babylon will feel what it was like to be a persecuted believer. There'll be no more music. There'll be no more joy. There'll be no more singing. There'll be no more love. The text says not even love will be there. There'll be no more brides and there'll be no more grooms. It's the kind of judgment that we see echoed throughout the Old Testament. Read passages like Jeremiah chapter 25 when God is bringing judgment against an unfaithful Israel. He is dealing with their sin because of what they've caused against the people. Go to Ezekiel chapter 26. You see the same thing and it's communicating a judicial principle, friends. That principle is the same today as it was then, and it will be the same forever. You see, the book of Revelation makes it absolutely clear. Man's chief end is to worship God, to glorify God, and to enjoy God forever. That's what we we call the Westminster Catechism today. Let me say that again. Our chief end as humanity has always been from the dawn of creation to worship God and to glorify Him forever and enjoy Him forever. You know what Babylon's done? The world, the systems of this world. It said, no, let's change that a little bit. Instead of glorifying God, let's glorify ourselves. Instead of worshiping Him, let's worship each other. And then you know what we'll do is we'll enjoy ourselves. We'll enjoy the things that we make, the things that we can create in the absence of a loving God, friends. And it's because of that that God brings judgment. Why? Because God will share His glory with no man. He will share it with nobody on this earth. And I know that sounds harsh and we think, my gosh, what kind of God is this? He is a God who loves us, friends. I often look, and and unfortunately, I I have the same challenge that most of us in this room probably do. Maybe some of you are better than me. But let me tell you, there is social media out there, right? I don't know if you've ever opened Instagram and scrolled through some of the Instagram stuff and thought to yourself, my gosh, that glorifies God. Honestly. And you know, it's crazy. Even some of the church stuff doesn't even glorify God. And I'm not speaking against anyone. Believe me, we're all capable of this. But just look at social media. If you don't believe this is what the world has come to, we are people who take pleasure in glorifying ourselves. In fact, popularity is probably the biggest vice that humanity has today. I would rather be popular in heaven and famous in hell than I would be popular here on this earth. That's a credit to Artie Kendall. He wrote a book called that. The second point for us this morning, and it's the sixth word of triumph, tells us that as devastating as this moment will be, it will be a time of great celebration. Revelations 19 verse 1, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Glory belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to our God, not to the world, not to our finances, not to our comforts, not to our pleasures, not to our families, but to our God. For His judgments are true and just. God is not a mean God. He's not a a God that seeks joy out of punishing people. He punishes people when they don't respond to His warnings. 
he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Now, I know this is a celebration, right? But at face value, this is quite sad. I say it's quite sad because when this moment comes, and it hasn't come yet, but when it does come, everybody that's in Babylon will be lost forever. I know we don't like to preach about heaven and hell anymore because it's quite offensive to some people, but let me tell you, at this moment in time, when God brings this judgment, anyone that is not in Christ will be in hell. And that's pretty sad for me. However, the multitudes of heaven rejoice. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it about this moment that causes the multitudes in heaven to rejoice? Well, the answer is extremely simple. From this point onwards, whenever this moment comes, whether it's tomorrow, a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, I'm not sure. But from that moment onwards, there will be no temptation. There will no longer be any distraction and there will be no danger to God's people ever again. The blot of sin will be removed. That is cause for celebration. Verse 3, once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. You know that word hallelujah? We sing it, we sang it this morning in a couple of songs already, and we'll probably sing it some more. That, that word hallelujah comes from two Hebrew words. The first word is the word halal, and it means joyous praise to God. In fact, there are a group of Psalms in the Old Testament, I think it's Psalm 113 to 116, called the halal prayers. And they praise us to God for how good he is. When we say hallelujah, we're talking about the goodness of God. And then the second word is the word yah, which is a shortened version of Yahweh. The God that Moses met at the burning bush. The God who is the name above all names. The King of kings. Yahweh came in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And so when we sing hallelujah, we're saying all glory, all power, all honor belongs to God and to Yahweh, the God of the universe. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It is echoed in Genesis 19. And Abraham, verse 27 of Genesis 19, looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. You can go to where Sodom and Gomorrah once stood today, and I'll tell you there's nothing there. All that's left is a very faint outline of a city and huge giant blobs of sulfur that you can light and they'll burn. Pretty intense, actually. In fact, that's where they mine a lot of sulfur today. All things will be worked out for our good, the Bible says. That was a joke, anyway. <laughs> but it tells us that just like Sodom and Gomorrah stand as a vivid picture of God's judgment, Babylon is going to do exactly the same thing. You see, Sodom and Gomorrah were a picture of Babylon. Tyre, as a nation or as a city, was a picture of Babylon. Nineveh was a picture of Babylon. Las Vegas is a picture of Babylon. Austin, Texas is a picture of Babylon. The United States of America is a picture of Babylon. Not the nation, not everybody in the nation, but the systems of this world. These are big pictures of what Babylon represents. But this text tells me that one day when she's gone, all that will be left is the smoke that rises as if from the fire. And what it tells us is that for all of eternity... We will never see sin again, no destruction, no hurt against God's people, but we will remember forever and ever the faithfulness of our God as he destroyed wickedness and blotted it from the earth forever. And the 24 elders, verse 4, and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne, 
Only one voice comes from the throne. That's the voice of Jesus. Came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, great and small. We are transported back to Revelations, the earliest age, Revelations chapter 4, and the throne room of God. We're back in the throne room now. That's where we are. That's what John sees. He sees the throne room again. Who's on the throne? God. Who's at his right hand? Jesus Christ. He is ruling and he is reigning, right? And all of a sudden, we realize that the book of Revelation is making this parallel circle again. And that's, I mean, I know some of you interpret it differently, but that's why I believe Revelation is is not a chronology of events. It's one event. It's God's plan for the redemption of humanity coming together through Jesus Christ. It's a message of victory, a message of joy. And we see this all coming together. We see the same characters, the elders and the living creatures. Remember the 24 elders, I said, at least my interpretation, is the 12 tribes of Israel included to that, the 12 disciples picturing the old and the new covenant, representing the vehicle that God is going to use on this earth, the church. The fact that God is being, uh, the fact that Jesus is commanding us to celebrate what God has done reminds us that the church wins, friends. There is a day where the church will be victorious. We don't have to live in the shadows. We don't have to live in defeat. We are victorious in Christ. And then the living creatures, the four of them. Remember those crazy looking beings, the seraphim, the protectors of the throne of God, the face of an eagle, the face of a lion, the face of the ox, the face of the man representing creation. So not only does the church win, but creation is going to be restored. In a sense, we're on our way back to Eden, friends. That should give us great joy. The earth is being restored. It's coming back to the way God intended it to become. Jesus is on the throne. He is the conquering king. Everything that Revelation has been promising us, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, is coming together. Jesus is true. He is faithful. We'll be introduced to him next week when we read about the rider on the white horse. But he is faithful and true, friends. No matter what the world is doing to you today, no matter how messed up things are today, you need to remember Jesus is faithful and true. His word will stand when everything else falls. The third point in the seventh word of triumph tells us that the king is coming and we need to be ready. Verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Remember Daniel chapter 7. Remember that beautiful picture speaking about Jesus being presented to God the Father. Daniel says in Daniel 7 verse 13 and 14, And behold, I saw one like the Son of Man riding in on the clouds, and he was presented to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given a kingdom and a dominion and authority, an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that can never be taken away. Well, guess what? This is fulfillment of it right here. Jesus is on the throne. And people respond. They rejoice. Why? Because Babylon is no more. Now, I want to tell you something, friends. We often read these passages of Scripture and we think, yes, when we get to that point, we'll rejoice. I believe our rejoicing starts right now. In fact, if you haven't been rejoicing yet, we need to start rejoicing. One could argue that the only way we can achieve victory in our lives is through rejoicing. Because when we rejoice about who Jesus is, we remind ourselves how faithful it is. And it's through the faithfulness of Christ that we are victors. And even though this has not happened yet in the natural, what does the Bible tell us? It tells me that I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. That God is the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore. That we are a people who are not of citizens of earth, but citizens of an eternal kingdom. And so we can rejoice because this has happened in a sense. And so victory is ours. When your challenges come, rejoice. Tell me, let me tell you, you want to know how to sort of disarm the enemy? Rejoice. 
I know it's hard and it's not easy, and I'm not trying to say this flippantly. I know what it means to be in bad places and have really heavy stuff on you. But friends, we have to fight through that and say, I remember who Jesus is. I know he wins, and so will I. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Then the second half of the verse says, For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. This is the crux, friends. This is the main thing this morning. One of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture. The Lamb has returned, the King has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Now, for us to understand the fullness of what's being said, at least the weightiness, I think it's important that we understand Jewish marriage customs. In Jewish customs, we're a lot more crazy than our American customs and a lot more expensive, I'm sure. That's why we've simplified it a lot. But here's the deal. It all started with the betrothal. The betrothal was the engagement. Like we get engaged here in America, this was a big deal. The husband would go and meet with the father to be, of the bride-to-be, and he would negotiate many things. One thing would be the bride price. How much do I need to pay you for your daughter's hand in marriage? That betrothal, in fact, was actually seen as a marriage. From that moment on, when the father accepted it, they were seen as husband and wife. But the husband doesn't stay there, right? The husband betrothes the wife, he agrees on the bride price, he pays the price, and then he goes home. He goes back to his house, to his father's house. And what does he do there? He prepares a place for his wife. He prepares a home. He says, I'm going to build you a beautiful home, and it's going to be amazing. That could take weeks, months, maybe even years. I don't know how long it would take. If it was, I mean, if Robert was building it a couple weeks, you know, that's how good he is. But the point is it could take time. But the husband is gone. But then all of a sudden, it's done. It's complete. The house is ready. He comes back. And the procession goes in reverse. He comes with his friends, it says, dressed. But you know what? He doesn't just come to a bride who's sitting there on the streets and just parking off with her friends and, you know, out there at the gym. No, she is waiting. The bride is waiting. She is dressed in her best wedding dress. She is dressed up. She is, and I mean, I don't mean to, this is just a picture in the Bible, but she is as beautiful as she can possibly be, waiting in expectation for her husband to come. And then there's the wedding feast. Once he receives her, he takes her home and he has the wedding feast. Now you might be thinking, that's great. Now we know how to get married, married if we we're Jewish people. What does that mean to us this morning? You know, throughout Scripture, weddings, marriages are used as the illustration of Jesus and the church, right? Isaiah 50, Isaiah 55, Ephesians chapter 5, Revelations chapter 21. We see this picture cycle over and over again. Why? Because it's a great picture, helps us understand in the natural how Jesus relates to us, why he's not here right now, when he's coming back. And incidentally, that's why marriage is under attack. Why do you think the enemy is after gender? Because he doesn't want people to be married. Sexuality, temptations, all of these things that come and mess up our marriages. Because if he can destroy a marriage, he's ruined people's understanding in the natural of how Christ relates to us. Thank goodness God is bigger than us and he can redeem all things. But back to the illustration. Jesus is the groom. We are the bride. He has betrothed us. And guess what? He paid the bride price. It cost him his life and his blood that was shed for us on Calvary. The most expensive wedding gift ever given in all of creation has been paid. But Jesus is not here right now. He's gone back home. And what does the Bible tell us he's doing? He is preparing a place for us. 
He is waiting to receive us. He's making sure that heaven is ready to receive his people. But I want to tell you, friends, he doesn't stay there. He's starting to come back. And we're seeing glimpses of of things happening all around the world. And I'm not saying he's coming back tomorrow. But what I do know is that he is heading back to his church. But there is a responsibility, friends. We don't just get to sit here and park off and wait and say, well, he'll come back one way or the other. No, we have to be ready. The Bible says that the bride has made herself ready. You know, there's a parallel between what happens to Babylon and what happens to the church. In fact, if you could read this, you should probably read it side by side. You should see the fall and the destruction of Babylon and then read the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because what it's telling us is as the world is spiraling down and being destroyed, the church is meant to be rising up, friends. We're not meant to be going across into the world. We're meant to become separate from the world. We're meant to become different to the world. We're meant to become more Christ-like. And so how do we do that? How do we become ready for our, bro- for our groom? We're called to maturity, friends. Jesus is not coming back to marry a child. Okay. He's coming back to marry a bride. Right now, the church is not ready for Jesus' return. I would dare to say that Hope Rock's not ready for, for his return. This is not against everyone else. We individuals are not ready for his return. Paul says this in Ephesians 4. He says, so that we may no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, who is Christ. If we want Jesus to come back soon, friends, our responsibility is to grow up. Marco, you have to grow up. I have to grow up. We have to be better at spotting this progressive gospel that's invading the church and deal with it in love and say, this is not the gospel. This is not the Lord that I serve. There are fundamentals we need to start standing for, not standing against. Don't go out there and bash people over the heads, but let's stand for what we believe in as the church. Let's rise up. Let's say, no, we will not be moved. The rock of ages is our foundation, and he tells me the truth, not the world, not the systems, and no matter how much you tell me not to gather for worship, I'm going to gather for worship. Why? Because he's worth it. That's what a mature church looks like. It's a church that understands what it means to be in local community, how we're accountable, and we need each other. We can't do this without each other, friends. It's a church that's united, not divided. That's not fighting over stupid things. We're making the main one the main thing all the time. Maturity means that we leave Babylon. It means that where we do find Babylon has invaded our lives and we are caught up in the systems of this world, we start to cut it out. I'm not... What's the word I'm looking for? I am not immune from Babylon. I have to always check my own heart time and again, friends, because it creeps into me. But being mature means that we can look at ourselves in the mirror and say, that's not what Christ needs in a bride. Let's get it dealt with. Let's sort it out. The church needs to stand out from the world. Not better than, not self-righteous, but just different. Why? Because we have Christ in us. They don't. And if we're no different to the world, there's a problem. Leonard Ravenhill says this, The tragedy of, the t- of today is that the church is pursuing happiness, not holiness. You know, I want to say to you, friends, the world, as attractive as a happy church is, the world doesn't need a happy church. It needs a holy church. 
A church that's willing to pick them up from the muck that they're in and lift them up in love and say, I will walk with you every day of your life through thick and thin, no matter what comes against me, because I love my Lord and that's what he's told me to do. And because of his love, I love you. That's what the world needs. And I might be getting better at it every day and becoming more holy myself, but it doesn't stop us from reaching down and lifting people up. Verse 8, sorry. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So as a result, friends, of withstanding the pressures of Babylon, as a result of maturing in our faith, of growing up, of leaving uh, behind us elementary doctrines, not forgetting about them, but growing up into what it means to be a believer. As we do that, guess what? Jesus meets us halfway and he gives us the bride clothes. He's, it says that that word granted is the Greek word did, didomi, and it means he gave it to us. He gives us the clothing of righteousness. And so you know what? Your works are not good enough. My works are not good enough. They will never be good enough. You can never become perfect. None of us on this earth will be perfect. If that's a surprise to you today, I'm sorry for bursting your bubble, but you won't be perfect. But guess what? Christ in me is the hope of glory. And so when he gives me his wedding clothes because I'm fighting against the temptations, well, he doesn't expect me to win every time. But what he does expect from me is that I'll get on my knees and say, Lord, I cannot do this without you. I'm failing on my own. I need your strength. Pick up, I'll pick up our cross daily and follow him and say, Lord, help me carry the cross because I can't do it without you. That's what it means. And he gives us his righteousness. Oswald Chambers says, God does not give us overcoming life. He gives us life as we overcome. Overcoming is not sinless. Overcoming means we recognize we've got work to do and we're going to do the work. It might take days, weeks, months, even years. It might take you confessing your sin to somebody, asking for repentance from God. It might mean getting friends around you and say, please, can you hold me accountable? Because I can't do this on my own. I've tried. Whatever it is, God gives us overcoming life. Philippians 4.13. How many of us quote that scripture all the time? I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. You can do nothing apart from Christ. And if you're trying to be holy without him, please stop because you're going to fail. Verse 9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So here's the deal. This is going to be controversial. Okay, but you know what? I'm not apologizing. I just said it. Cheapers. Now I'm apologizing to you for apologizing. I mean, <laughs> whoo! Verse 9, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me explain this to you. Every single person who has ever accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, which means you accepted what he did for you at Calvary, is enough. By faith, through grace, we've received salvation in Jesus Christ. Not by our works, not by our good deeds. None of that matters. Jesus did it. If you believe in him today, you are saved. No matter how desperate you are, no matter how bad you are as a person, Jesus died for you. His blood is enough. Everyone who's been saved, who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their heart and trusts what he's done, is going to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Great, right? How many of you have been invited to a marriage and to a wedding and you get realized and you realize you're not seated in the main room? Like you're seated outside where the horses are. Okay? Let me tell you, friends, being invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb is one thing, but where we're seated matters. You see, we are saved by faith in Christ. That's called justification. We get that. We will go to the supper. But, friends, I want to be seated next to Jesus. You see, that's the process we call sanctification, beholding the glory of God. I'm being transformed from one degree of glory into another. And this is done by the Spirit, not by my flesh. When we become sanctified, when we let God work in our lives, we're dealing with matters of inheritance, friends. Inheritance means where we sit at the table. 
And so if you're happy just to get into heaven, that's fine. But I want to be as close to Jesus for all of eternity. And I can't explain this in detail because I've never been to heaven. But let me tell you, there's a sense that there is a reward to those who overcome. We saw it in the seven churches. To the church that overcomes, I will grant him a robe of righteousness. To the one who overcomes, you'll get the crown of righteousness. To this one, you will get the jewels. There are gifts God has for us in the fullness of time that he wants us to have. And I fear, friends, that we have undercut our inheritance because we've become used to a lukewarm Christianity. You are saved. You're going to heaven, and that's enough. I'm not here to heap burdens on you. I'm here to encourage us, friends, because if all we have is eternity, I want to get the best possible seats I can get. I don't want to be sitting next to those stinky donkeys. And let me tell you, those donkeys stink, okay? Ben can come up, and he said to me, these are the true words of God. See, on time, look at that. Boom, on time. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down. The angel was speaking to John, by the way, not Jesus. It says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, the angel said to John, you must not do that. Don't do it, John. Don't get on your knees for anyone else but Jesus. I'm going to tell you the same thing today. Do not bow your knee to anyone or anything that is not the Lord Jesus Christ, friends. For I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This angel was pretty awesome, I'm sure. I think if we saw an angel, we'd probably be wanting to worship them as much as John was. But the angel says something interesting to John. He gives him two things to do. I know this message, even though it's a celebration, you might be thinking, gosh, I feel like, I mean, there was a lot. And, you know, am I good enough? Am I going to sit next to Jesus? Where am I sitting at the table? What more can I do? How do I get there? Friends, I want you to be free this morning. The angel tells us what to do. He says, hold to the testimony of Jesus. You want to know how you get close to Jesus? Hold to his testimony. In other words, go tell people about Jesus. Believe that what he did for you on the cross is enough. When the the devil comes and tells you you're not enough, you say, buddy, I know who Jesus is. You clearly weren't there at Calvary because he bought me with his blood. I am enough. In fact, I'm more than enough in Christ Jesus. Hold to the testimony of Jesus. You want to sit next to him? Hold to his testimony. And then go and preach his testimony. And then go and fulfill the Great Commission. And then he says this, worship God. Two things. Worship God. Hold to the testimony of Jesus. Why? Because the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Every biblical prophetic word that should ever utter out of our minds has to be grounded first in what Jesus accomplished for us. It's not about speaking into the future. But when we're in Christ, He gives us the words and it always builds people up. The testimony of Jesus builds people up. Yes, it might convict people, but it's not going to condemn them. The enemy condemns us. Jesus convicts us. And this morning, we're going to break bread. We're going to celebrate communion together. This is a mini version of the marriage supper of the Lamb. I know it's not really like, wow. But I want you to imagine today that as you break bread, as you receive this bread and you drink of this wine, that you are partaking in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup of su- after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's a new covenant, friends. We've been redeemed. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the testimony of Jesus. When we break bread, we bring in the testimony of Jesus. When you break bread in your homes, you're reminding yourselves of the testimony of Jesus. That brings life. It brings encouragement. I want you to be encouraged when you break bread this morning. Not condemned. I want you to be encouraged. Lord, thank you for giving me this opportunity to be a part of your life. But then Paul says something. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. While we celebrate Jesus at this table, there is a commandment to us to examine our hearts. I have got so much to repent for. If I had to do it publicly today, we'd be here all day. Okay. And so I know that before I break bread this morning, once I've dipped this bread into the cup, there's gluten-free there at the back there for the gluten-free folk. It's okay. God loves you. When you dip the bread into the juice and you go back to your seat, instead of getting around people and asking to people to pray with you, I want you to have a moment with the Lord. And just go to Him and say, Lord, there's stuff in my life I need to fix. I get it. I can't do it without you, Lord. I want to be more holy. I want to be ready for when you come back, Jesus. I want to be the bride that you've been waiting for. And then I'm going to ask you to pray this. Lord, help me be the person that belongs to the church, that will help the church become the bride that she needs to be. Because it's going to take all of us, friends, not just me, not just the leaders. It's going to take every believer across every church in the world to help this bride rise up. Amen? So let's stand. I'm going to pray. And then the communion tables will be open. You can come up, get your communion, go down, sit down, do the business that you need to do with the Lord. And then when you're done, stand up and praise the Lord and sing this song with us as we close. And if you need prayer afterwards or you want to physically go to somebody and tell them some stuff and maybe ask them to help you work through some stuff, we'll be up here to pray. And believe me, friends, when I say this, there is no judgment. And if you're here this morning and you don't even know who Jesus is, I want to tell you it starts with a simple decision. Believing that the Lord Jesus Christ died for your sins. As you are, not as you should be. As messed up as your life may be, He died for you. And that it's through His blood that you find redemption. And you receive it by faith through His grace. It's not an act of works. It's an act of faith. If you want to make that commitment this morning, maybe you need to renew a commitment because you feel like you really never made that commitment properly. I'll be up here. Mark will be up here. Uh, Leah will be up here. And we want to pray with you. And other deacons will be up here. Just come up and get prayer. I really want to encourage you. If you need prayer, get it. Don't wait. Lord Jesus, we thank you. For this beautiful reminder, Lord, that you love us despite or in spite of how messed up we are. That you died for us as we were, not as we should be. And thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that you're calling us to greater fulfillment in you. A greater life of effectiveness, of fruitfulness, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that as we partake in your broken body and in your blood this morning, you would bring to our hearts anything, Lord, that is displeasing to you, Lord. And if the enemy comes in and tries to heap guilt on us, Holy Spirit, I pray you would shut him down in an instant. But give us strategy. Give us wisdom. Even give us people's names who can walk a journey with us to become the bride that you expect us to be. We love you, Lord. I pray that Hope Rock Church would grow up to be this bride, Lord. We are not there yet. But Lord, do your work in us that we can all become the bride you're coming back for. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.